Welcome to the June 2022 edition of Discourse, our critical take on the category of religion in the news and current affairs. I'm Ben Marcus, your host. Today, I have guests Lauren Horn Griffin and Jade Hui. I'm very excited about our guest today, and I look forward to learning a lot from you both. A bit about me. I earned my bachelor's and master's degrees in religious studies from Brown and Harvard Divinity School, respectively. After graduating from HDS, I worked for five years at the Freedom Forum in Washington, D.C., where I served as the religious literacy specialist. And in that position, I wrote and spoke extensively about, among other things, the academic and constitutional study of religion in American primary and secondary schools. I'm currently pursuing a law degree from Yale Law School, where I focus in particular on the intersection of religious freedom and LGBTQ rights. Jade and Lauren, would you mind introducing yourselves for us, please? Jade? If you want to go first. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Jade. I'm a master's student in religion at U of T, University of Toronto, and I'm doing a specialization in sexual diversity studies. Right now, I'm looking at the intersection between Buddhist studies and math studies, looking at how they can help each other out. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. And Lauren? Hi, I'm Lauren. I am assistant professor of religious studies at Louisiana State University. I am interested in religion, media, technology, and politics. My first book looked at historical media. It was on the early modern period. It's called Fabricating Founders, and it looks at discourses of origins and how those were reimagined and reworked in uh, post-Reformation England. Now, my work uh, looks at uh, contemporary social media and Catholic communities. I'm looking particularly at discourses on modernity and tradition and how those play out in lots of different spaces. Great. Thank you so much. And Lauren, I guess while we're on you, I thought we'd start with a topic that you brought to us. Both of us actually wanted to discuss topics related to the U.S. Supreme Court, and you in particular were interested in kicking us off with a discussion about abortion and funding, uh, well, abortion, including the recent draft decision by Justice Salito and Dobbs. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you were thinking about that draft decision? Yeah, so the draft decision was really interesting for me as someone who's interested in thinking about discourses on origins. So uh, in that in that draft, Alito claimed that abortion is not a, quote, deeply rooted tradition, but is it? And so I got to thinking about how tradition, claims to tradition are often sort of act as religious, right? Um, so in the leaked decision, right, when he made that claim, scholars took to social media to sort of unpack his historical narrative that he presented in that draft and explain sort of the gaps in his framing. Um, the posts were great. They pointed out lots of historical inaccuracies and problems in his account. Um, but I found more importantly that their arguments, when taken together, sort of eroded the notion that moral traditions are these self-evident things, right, as opposed to fluid concepts that are continuously formed in discourse. So I, what, what struck me was the sort of uncritical invocation of, of tradition, capital T tradition, that can make something seem given, timeless, universal, all without appealing to the divine or religion or anything like that. So it works in, in a really similar way. Many threads, uh, when scholars took to Twitter and TikTok, which is where I consumed all of this content from historians out there. And a lot of them obviously pointed out that the history and tradition in both America and England, which Alito drew on in his draft, uh, that they considered abortion a crime only if it happened after quickening or when the mother could feel the child move around 20 weeks. Others focused on like, um, 
he Alito quoted this uh, 17th century English jurist, Sir Matthew Hale, and explained how Hale had exemplif- uh, sort of – that whole invocation of Hale exemplifies that abortion discourse has long been part and parcel with a whole bunch of other patriarchal stuff like marital rape and burning women as witches, which Hale um, also supports in the, in the document that Alito quotes. Um, other people ask questions about like who is writing, right? So the history – who's writing the tradition, right? And who, who, in what communities is it deeply rooted, right? So scholars combed the draft to see that he like cited 75 legal scholars, um, only four are women. And he cites himself more times in the, in the document than all women combined. Um, so again, who's speaking? Um, on the other hand, so, so they, they sort of poked holes in Alito's narrative in that way. But on the other hand, black and brown scholars pointed out that, um, that this has been, you know, unequally applied, right? Um, uh, indigenous historians pointed out how access wasn't equal, right? Many states made it virtually impossible for women to access the reproductive health care they need under Roe. Uh, there was lots of stories on Twitter of largely white young professional women who had sought things like tubal ligation and were denied. While on the other hand, sterilization has been forced on black and brown women in a variety of contexts. So we could ask again, and then from a different perspective, how deeply rooted was Roe in the last 50 years? at all. Um, and then how long does it have to be rooted to be deeply rooted, right? 1973, almost 50 years ago. Is that long enough to count as capital T tradition? Um, so lots of interesting claims there. But I feel like as we've seen over battles with things like Ten Commandments monuments, uh, Christians often get around the issue of not being able to explicitly invoke religion by claiming that those things are something else, right? History, not religion. It's tradition, not religion, right? So Alito's trying to establish social norms without directly using what other, whatever version of Christianity to authorize it, right? So he needs capital T tradition in order to portray his specific historical time periods as universal divine timelessness, right? So use the tools we often ascribe to religion without being religious. Yeah, so that was sort of one major thing I took away from it um, and how, how broad appeals to the past or to roots or tradition take social standards um, especially ones that are contested and being negotiated and create the appearance that the norm stands outside of history, outside of society, outside of politics, right? Even even without language that directly appears appeals to divine forces, right? The idea that things have always been this way gives it that immutable and, and enduring air. So... All of this is what led scholars and journalists to actually historicize Alito's claims and to unpack like these centuries old traditions uh, that are internally diverse and don't easily map on to categories and ideas. Right. And this type of nuance and complexity, though, goes against like the idea behind things like constitutional originalism or biblical literalism. Right. Something that religion scholars are also really poised to talk about. Right. This idea that textual authority is simple, clear and timeless and we can point to it. Right. Um, And so this makes things like history, quote unquote history or, or, or capital tree traditions seem like obvious self-evident terms. And moments like this just highlight how constructed these things really are, right? What counts as history? What counts as tradition? These are, you know, viewed as deeply rooted or decided by those whose claims end up being taken as normative. So all this for me points back to the question of what does it mean to acknowledge roots and who gets to decide what those roots um, really are? Thank you so much. That's a really provocative, insightful, interesting way of starting us off. Jade, do you have any thoughts in response? Yeah, I've just been wondering how, like, 
um, what you said about like pr- when we prove that some traditions are deeply rooted, like why is there still an assumption that traditions have to be followed? Like that's like the basic inquiry I've been thinking about. And Lauren, I don't know if you have a response to that. Yeah, I think it, it, it goes to that question of audience again, right? Um, like who whose tradition and who's obligated to follow it, right? So what are we what are we doing, right, when we when we draw on those traditions? And this is in, in American political discourse, this is a larger idea, right? Especially in recent years, making something great again as a core argument mobilized by conservatives and Trumpists, right? So once we unpack, to me, once we unpack what's going on with these claims, we can recognize Number one, how there is no clear past, right? And two, how these debates actually aren't about the past at all, right? They're about the present. So when those historians took to social media, um, like the thread on on Sir Matthew Hale, and Very and cool. better point out how sometimes women were actually more free then, right? They, they were, the, the, the law was actually more, less restrictive back then. Um, now, none of those historians were suggesting that we go back to the Middle Ages because they were so great, right? But they do point out how our own narratives of progress have often blinded us to the fact that like other societies and other places aren't, quote, backward while we are advanced, right? They were people. Um, and and indeed, the, like, the idea that humans are evolving on some sort of linear progression is, you know, dangerous, precisely because it does allow us to overlook these issues in our own society. So, yeah, the work of those of those historians on Twitter were important, I think, not only because they poked holes in his and Alito's specific historical narrative presented in that draft, but even more so because they highlight how that singular and linear, to go back to your point, Jade, notion of tradition, right? Something that's singular and linear, right? The idea that there's that there's that sort of tradition surrounding abortion or anything else is simply inaccurate. There is no enduring or coherent Christian belief about pregnancy, abortion, or the beginning of life, because they're always shaped by contemporary social reality, just like everything else. They're embedded in history, politics, science of of the time and, and the when these conversations are happening. Um, so when we take the time, I, I think this whole conversation points to like, when we take the time to unpack modern appeals to the past, we can see that our contemporary interests just don't influence our accounts of the past. They continuously create it. I'm curious to, as someone in law school and, you know, we talk a lot about how to interpret texts and obviously appeals to history are, are um, one major uh, proposal that we that we look at the history of original public meaning or other ways of talking about history and tradition to make sense of the constitutional text. As someone who studies religion and who thinks a lot about history and tradition, if we do not uh, appeal to history and tradition in, in interpreting the text, what might we appeal to? Do you have any insights from your research about um, what might be an alternative way to make sense of texts that is a, a principled approach. Oh yeah, I don't. I'm not saying that history, you know, isn't something that we should look to, right, or 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 um, invoke. Um, as a as a person who is really interested in rhetoric, though, and and uh, and discourses of tradition, I'm always looking at the ways in which we're talking about it as a is a singular and linear thing, right? That has that timeless quality. So for example, like the Twitter historians 
and, and, and TikTokers who, who were able to draw on history, right. To point out, to, to nuance his narratives. Right. Um, there, so yeah, I'm not saying let's not like read history or like draw on the past. Right. But, um, but, but how do discourses and rhetorics elevate those things to, um, to construct capital T tradition and then use it as an authorizing tool in the present. Right. Um, so how does that, how does it go from, um, okay, we're going to think about what people have thought in the past to like, I'm going to construct for you a deeply rooted quote tradition or not, right. To show that it is not deeply rooted, right. This idea that like we can draw a line one way or the other, just, you know, I, I think that it is a mistaken way to look at, quote, tradition, right, and impose it as a timeless, universal thing, authority. Yeah, thanks. And Jade, you, you brought up this idea of tradition and why tradition is important. Maybe it's not important. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? What were you thinking when you asked that particular question? Yeah, like when Lauren was talking about like how there's a trend of like make America great again. Uh, I've always I've I've also like looked at like Hong Kong where like in the social protests in 2019, a slogan that popped up was also uh, related to like restoring light. And um, so I was just thinking about this glorification of the past, like where did it come from and why Why do we compare um, and hope for a return of something that we hadn't known before? Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. I think maybe now is a good time to turn to our second topic, which also deals with questions of history and tradition to some extent, at least histories and traditions of religious freedom in the United States and the separation of church and state, what it might mean. And of course, I'm talking about um, Carson v. Macon, which was a case decided by the Supreme Court on June 21st. Um, that case was about government funds flowing to religious schools. The state of Maine enacted a program that provided tuition assistance for parents who live in rural school districts that don't have a secondary school or a contract with a school in another district. Under the program, parents can ask their school school district to send payments to a school of the parents choosing to defray the cost of tuition. Parents could choose to direct the payments to other public schools and to non-sectarian private schools. Interestingly, Maine did not bar all schools from receiving um, funding just because they're affiliated with or controlled by a religious organization. Maine claimed instead to bar schools based on whether the funding would underwrite religious activity. In other words, Maine was claiming that they were differentiating between religious status and religious use. In its decision, the court held that Maine's use of a, quote, non-sectarian requirement to determine eligibility for funding violated the free exercise clause. The court, quoting its earlier decision in Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue, reiterated that a, quote, state need not subsidize private education. But once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious, end quote. There's a whole lot more that can be said about the decision, and we can dispute many of the ways that the court characterizes the case. But I want to start with this question. What do you, Lauren and Jade, think about the distinction between religious status and religious use? In the case, the court seems to collapse the distinction between the two. The court writes, quote, any attempt to give effect to such a distinction by scrutinizing whether and how a religious school pursues its educational mission 
would also raise serious concerns about state entanglement with religion and denominational favoritism. So what do you make of that? Is it possible to differentiate between religious instruction in religious schools and, quote, non-religious or secular instruction? I don't know if either of you has any thoughts about, about those questions. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think I think the idea that so in religious studies, we do a lot of, um, you know, uh, taking a critical approach to the term religion and pointing out, right, that it's largely meaningless or not meaningless, but it is um, a use of the scholar study, right, as as Jay-Z Smith would say, right, this idea that, like, what's more interesting to look at is when people deploy this category and, and for what purposes. But, but I feel like, to your question, what's doing here, right, what this is highlighting for me, right, is that this is really about filtering, using these terms to sort of uphold, like, private consumer choice. So what comes out to me is this like consumer citizenship situation wherein like we're going to preserve certain things by or not preserve, but we're going to protect certain things by filtering it through the mechanism of private choice, right? Um, You're a consumer in the marketplace and non-religious education is the same as religious education because it's all just different choices on the ideological marketplace. Right. And I don't think that that's a very helpful way of, I don't think that's a very honest way of looking at it. I don't know from a lawyer, from like a law perspective, what, what was your like initial reaction? Yeah, that's a really interesting take. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. And I don't know that my initial reaction was really a legal one as much as it was a religious studies one. And, and my question I guess, is rooted in this idea that one can look at what's happening in, say, a Catholic school and determine which parts of the curriculum are religious and which are secular. So I think there's often this this assumption that you can look at the math class or a science class or maybe a literature class, perhaps, and say, oh, well, what's happening there is actually secular instruction when you're teaching about algebra or when you're teaching about evolution or when you're teaching about you know, beloved by Toni Morrison, what you're doing is really just some sort of secular instruction that would happen in uh, a public school as well. Um, And I think what the conservative justices point out, and I'm not sure that they're incorrect in saying this, is that in many religious schools, there's at least a self-conception that what they're doing in all of those subjects is religious, that when you're teaching about science or math or literature in a Catholic school, you can't just disentangle the religious aspects of the instruction from the quote-unquote secular aspects. And to me, that's a really interesting claim and one that even though I tend to sympathize more with the more liberal justices on many decisions, I'm not quite sure that they get right here in trying to uphold this status use distinction and saying that it's better to try to um, separate funds that are going to religious use in schools, because I'm not quite sure it's really possible to decide what exactly is being used for quote unquote religious purposes. I, you know, it, there's a lot to say there, but it, and, and, and what might be true from a religious studies perspective might not be administrable from a, from a legal perspective. And that's where I spend a lot of my time is trying to navigate between sort of the, the, the religious studies perspective and what actually is functional, what, what, what can be implemented in law. So I don't know if that answers your question, Lauren, yeah. or if you have, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so scholars like, you know, 
Winifred Fowler Sullivan have shown us that like it really is impossible. Like this whole thing is is difficult. And what this conversation for me is highlighting is how we're talking about quote religious versus secular, even as as religious studies scholars who have critiqued these terms time and again, right? In like our religion one hundred and one type classes. Um, but like I feel like even I'm still falling back onto this comfortable spot of like viewing the way we're talking about this, right? Is that religion that these are belief systems, right? So when I first on the first day of like my intro course. I have my students write a definition of religion. And then we sort of use the tools of the course all, all, all semester to critique these ideas. And almost all of them are like a good majority, right? Belief and especially belief system, right? And, and the whole course is how that's sort of like not a helpful way of like characterizing what it is people are doing and what how, how all of us are informing our like behavior and decisions, right? Or like to go back to our previous conversation about roots and tradition, right? The idea that belief systems create those things is something that I really work hard to critique in my intro course, but that, but that we're coming back on that framework here, right? That like, well, everybody has a belief system. Everybody has beliefs. So aren't all schools basically religious indoctrination, which I think that leap is really not helpful. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure that I, I would say that what's happening in public schools is religious per se. I'm, I, I think the question is, when you enter a religious school, can you start to make fine distinctions about when religion is present and when it isn't? And so that, to me, is a, is a fascinating question. And it certainly... This is where I think the conversations that are happening in religious study circles are actually being taken up in interesting ways, though not, I would say, perhaps in good faith and not in the kinds of robust ways that I would like to see. But they're being taken up, I think, by conservative religious freedom advocates who are saying, well, you know, what's happening in a public school is not neutral. It is not not related to religion, even, you know, the quote unquote secular is related to the construction of religion, which I would say is accurate. I think that the secular and and the religious are, you know, are in some sort of dialectical relationship. And so I'm not quite sure what to do with the fact that conservatives in this case seem to be recognizing the sort of pervasiveness of religion in in the quote-unquote secular in ways that I find to be more deeply rooted or more honest to certain religious studies scholarship than the liberals' conception of, of religion in this opinion, where it seems that they seem to think you can, you can disentangle religion and quote-unquote secular subjects, or that they have nothing to do with one another, or they're not at least in conversation with one another. Yeah, I agree that it's very hard to like untangle these relations, especially when you also think about like the asymmetrical power relations that could happen in the classroom. Um, just uh, I didn't come from a religious school, so I don't know if that experience for people who have gone through that would feel like the school is a temple of some sort or something. Um, so, yeah, uh, clashing of belief systems. That's yeah. A takeaway for me. Yeah. Thanks, Lauren. I did. I see that you also wanted to jump in as well. Oh no! I think um, just thinking about it from like an international perspective, 
because you had brought up, can you say more about sort of where you were going with thinking about it sort of outside? I know this is like a U.S. Supreme Court case, but outside the U.S. Yeah. So another question that I had about this case is that the response has been quite fascinating, again, from kind of a, a religious studies perspective. So there are a number of organizations, especially on the left, who have characterized this as further erosion of religious freedom in the United States. And I certainly think that there are a lot of very um, convincing arguments that one might make that this is definitely a departure from how we've conceived of religious freedom in the past, especially how we've thought about the Establishment Clause and the, and the restrictions that the Establishment Clause might put in place on government funding flowing to religious schools. But if we take a step back and sort of think about religious freedom paradigms from an international perspective, there are a number of different countries that we might think of as having robust religious freedom commitments, including, for example, the United Kingdom, where government funds regularly flow to to schools, including religious schools. And we don't always, I think, necessarily see that as an indication that those countries have no religious freedom commitments. Um, And so I'm sort of curious how that might play out as we see religious freedom jurisprudence shift in the United States and and what looks like increasingly as we see a, a court that's willing to have government funds flow to religious institutions, not only religious schools, but even, you know, things like religious adoption agencies, for example, which we saw recently. What does that mean? And and I guess what I'm thinking about when I think about the difference between the UK, for example, and the United States, is that it's my understanding that in other countries, the government might provide funds to religious institutions, but the government also retains the ability to condition those funds on certain things like anti-discrimination protections. And so I think that to me is, is where I'm very keen to see where we go in the United States. I would say concerned to see where we go. It seems that not only are we moving into a space that looks to me a little bit more like, for example, a British model um, where government can flow to both public, uh, government funds can flow to both public and private schools through this voucher mechanism. Although, you know, obviously there's differences, vouchers versus not here in the UK, but the the flow of funds, um, but but I want to see what happens with anti-discrimination protections. Will there be any controls that the government can put on those funds? Yeah, that's a really great question. And that's why thinking about this outside of U.S. context is hard for me because I view it in such a in light of U.S. history. Right. So like in light of segregation and Brown v. Board and and thinking about how discourses on religion often are discourses on race and and other things. Right. Sexuality and gender. The Carson v. Making case right explicitly discriminates against LGBTQ uh, people and so so what what is that right so how are how are discourses on religious freedom also discourses on race gender sexuality ways of talking about all of these other things and yeah what what are, what are the protections going to look like or not right for for those folks yeah it's interesting that you bring up you know obviously religious freedom discourse in the United States is deeply embedded in questions of of race, gender, sexuality. 
And in particular, your question makes me think of the work of one of my uh, colleagues, Dr. Sabrina Dent. We worked together at the Freedom Forum, and she really led this initiative of thinking about African-American perspectives on religious freedom, where they brought together black scholars from around the United States to talk about religious freedom from a from an African-American perspective, black perspective. And one of the conversations that stuck with me most about that project was a conversation about the conditions that are necessary for freedom, sort of what are the predicates for freedom? What, what do we need to have in place to have a really robust conception of freedom where people can exercise that freedom? And so there was a, a conversation from these scholars from black communities talking about how often minoritized communities don't have access to resources to be able to exercise their freedoms. They might not be able to build houses of worship. They might not be able to gather in certain kinds of ways. They might not be able to um, uh, support ministers in, in certain kinds of ways because they lack the resources. And, and that question of access to resources to exercise freedom which was happening among black scholars, many of whom were on the left, strikes me as in some ways an interesting parallel to what's happening on the right, where there's this contention in, in a case like Carson v. Macon, at least under the surface, that in order to be able to exercise religious freedom, certain types of religious schools can't be cut off from public benefits like this, this voucher program. And... I find that fascinating that the conversations are sort of happening in parallel, but I think for very different purposes. Um, and I'm curious how this will spill over into other areas of law, if at all, where often the court does not recognize the right to have access to the resources that make the exercise of freedom possible. And and so that that's something that I've thought a lot about. How How is this case, which is largely about white Christians, is it opening any doors for other kinds of communities, other religious communities, other minoritized communities to make claims, to have access to certain kinds of resources, to be able to exercise their freedoms more effectively? Mm. So... I'm aware of how much time we've taken to discuss Carson v. Macon. I could discuss it all day. There's so much more that is left that we've left unsaid about the case. But in the interest of time, I do want to turn to a third topic. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the international implications, or, or I guess maybe better stated that in how international perspectives on religious freedom might shape our response to Carson v. Macon. And so, staying on the non-American lens, I want to turn to Hong Kong. So Jade, I know you wanted to talk a bit about the grieving rituals and performance art that occurred in Hong Kong on June 4th. Could you tell us more about that? What happened and, and what are your thoughts about yeah, it? Yeah, since we're on the topic of like authorities and the past, I would like to talk about, um, so on June 4th, 2022, more than 100 policemen were guarding Victoria Park against illegal gatherings. Mr. Sung alone put down an umbrella and two electric candles on the ground while reading a book about the history of modern mime. And he replied no comment when he was asked by the police why he had come to visit and kept reading in the rain. Afterwards, he told the journalist that a one-person mime also has its own uniqueness. 
Art as trial and error gives us an idea of what reactions can escape from being policed. On the same day, in the same district, other artists were skinning potatoes, biting weeds while lying on the ground, interacting with pedestrians through math questions that have the answers 8964, and one of them was arrested for misconduct in public places. While I have been doing research in medieval China, Strickman wrote that there is embarrassment among modern scholars who attempt to interpret Chinese religion through the boundaries of Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, especially when they have to deal with the cult of the dead, ancestor worship. So we must ask how this nameless religion centered around grief is continually neglected and belittled. Yeah, so what does it mean when personal grieving rituals are policed? There was a lady that was wearing a yellow mask and a yellow top that reads at Oil Hong Kong and was stopped and searched by the police for hanging out, handing out A4 blank pieces of paper to pedestrians that she believes to symbolize blessings. The police only let her go after she assured that the papers would be thrown away and did not and could not answer why paper distribution was, dis was disallowed. If nothing really happened, how do we explain the surrounding paranoia and the bonds being formed and fragmented inside? silence. Have, de have deaths and disappearances become too burdensome for language to even contain? And how else might we break the illusions of purity? Like, these are the things I've been thinking about. Thank you, Thank you so much for sharing. Lauren, do you have any reactions yeah. or questions? Yeah. I mean, yeah, this story for me really highlights the role of history and memory and how material culture, you know, the things that even even in a lack of of a dedicated space like a monument, right, to do that, like they are still able to these sort of attempts at memorialization through color and the numbers, you know, signifying the date and um, all these ways of trying to remember Tiananmen Square have such a powerful role in shaping publics. You know, I, I've been thinking about how memorials and monuments, you know, create that collective memory. And, and, and this story is, shows that it's not only their presence, which is completely lacking right in the Hong Kong example, but also what they remember and how monuments commemorate it. I've been thinking about memorials and memory a lot because I just returned from the Learning with Charlottesville Summer Institute at the Race, Religion and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Shout out to the Religion Lab. So we at that at that institute, we were using events that happened in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017 and the aftermath as an example of exactly this. Right. How race, religion and democracy are presented in public spaces. And in this example, it's really um, a grassroots thing by a variety of people who are still trying to memorialize something that is being you know, cracked down upon. Right. So in the Charlottesville example, tensions rose after that Trump election and activists are trying to sort of get civil war propaganda statues removed and these dueling protests result in like a unite the right rally where right wing groups like you know infamously marched with like torches and and the next morning, one drove a car through an assembly of protesters, killing one person, Heather Hare. So what this story made me think about is that how it doesn't just shape like a, a capital O our collective memory, but there are a variety of publics shaped by material culture and memorialization that are reading these events differently. Right. In a lot of different ways. So as you were saying, Jade, there's no like one, you know, particular response. There's no like the Confucian way of more or, or the, you know, this is a Buddhist practice. Like there's a, a lot of ways of creating 
ideas in these spaces um, and in the silence, right? Um, so sites of memory really change our understanding of the past, uh, in turn shaping the present, right? But um, silencing certain memories and voices or rendering certain publics in the future perhaps not possible anymore, right? What will happen to ideas about democracy in Hong Kong with no memory or memorial to what happened in in Tiananmen Square. Um, I also read a story when you, when you had br- brought that up, I read a story about the removal of a monument, which was called the Pillar of Shame that had stood um, initially in Victoria Park, right? But before uh, being moved to the University of Hong Kong. And I read about the student union that would wash the statue every year to commemorate uh, the Tiananmen massacre. And I thought about that name, Pillar of Shame, and how that really draws out the affect of shame and puts it on the state, right? Um, there are religious studies scholars like Donovan Schaefer who bring out that aspect of all of this affect to shed light on how sort of that rhetoric also shapes what's going on in this situation. So this crackdown, both on public gatherings and rituals, as well as that statue statue removal a few months ago, will certainly reshape these publics. And I liked how you brought up the silence and sort of the ways in which a variety of people are still trying to grieve and remember and memorialize. Thank you so much for your column. Thanks, Lauren. Go ahead, Jade. I was going to ask if you wanted to respond to, to I Lauren. I just wanted to like add one point, like the pillar of shame part that you mentioned just now. It made me realize that like the Chinese character for shame, you mean you need ears and a heart for shame to like experience shame. I was just thinking about that little detail. Yeah, that's really Thank interesting. You. Go ahead, Lauren. Oh, I was just going to ask if the sort of the removal of that statue and the recent crackdown on like memorialization how how are people carving out ways to to memorialize this right for memory i know you mentioned a few examples but um is it are there concerted organized efforts or is it really like uh, individuals trying to um take some small acts of Grief and memorialization. Um, group gatherings became more um, infrequent after COVID. And then there's this activist, Luryuk Lin, who was holding three bundles of white chrysanthemums and was warned that her actions may be against Hong Kong national security laws. Even when she was crying and like asking what crime is committed through grieving, the policeman warned paper mache offering shops not to sell her underworld currency and clothing. They say that like silent tribute individually is okay, but like if you burn anything outside, like the liaison office of the central people's government, then that would be committing a crime. So you get the sense that like people are coming up with creative solutions, but they have to like not hit a point where it accumulates and becomes like violating like the Hong Kong national security law. Yeah. I have uh, one question. You know, when we were talking about Carson V. Macon, I asked, I, I was pondering in my head how someone in the UK, for example, might think of what's going on in the United States, whether their reactions might be different than some of the, the folks in the US responding to it. And I'm curious as, someone now who's based at the University of Toronto, do you feel like that gives you a different perspective on what's happening in Hong Kong? Do do you see that your community in in Toronto is responding differently or, or has it, or does it provide a new, a new lens at looking at what's happening on in, in June 4th, for example? Yeah. And to be honest, this stance is like continually being updated, like, because 
like news in Hong Kong are also like being updated as well. Like very recently, like um, politicians have been saying that Hong Kong was never a colony. So I'm sitting here like in in my university thinking about what I've been learning about post-colonial studies and what what could that perspective like once that perspective is taken away, once we stop using a post-colonial lens to look at Hong Kong, what's what's left about there? So like been thinking about like the consequences of what people say about Hong Kong and how that affects my identity in the making as well. Thank you for bringing that up. So I'm aware of the time and I'm wondering if either of you want to close us out by reflecting on all three of the conversations that we've had. It sounds like there have been some interesting strands that have woven them together, including conversations about history and tradition, the discussions that we've had about, you know, bringing an international lens and how that might shift the way that we talk about these issues, whether it changes the stakes, whether it reveals some of our own assumptions about what religion is, what freedom is. Do either of you want to offer any closing reflections about about the conversations and, and what might bind them together or, or distinguish them? Yeah, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I yeah, for me, I just keep coming back to um, the ways in which discourses on the past are mobilized for um, a variety of uses in the present and create a variety of publics, right? Uh, We create different groups rhetorically um, in naming them, right? So the ways in which whether memory is created in a, you know, ideas about deeply rooted tradition in a very publicized, you know, uh, decision draft or, or really small uh, ways of memorializing under, you know, a state crackdown. This, those are all spaces where we create ideas about memory and tradition that inform what we're doing, right. And, and what we want to do. And so as religious studies scholars, just being super in tune to two discourses of tradition of origins and, and who's using them and for what purposes is, is really the core of what I'm interested in as, as a scholar. Great. Thank you. And Jade, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah. Just wondering about like whose interests are we really dealing with when we're talking about uh, tradition and how can like is tradition worth reclaiming? That's also a question that's on my mind. And what are the strategies in which we can reform traditions or or come up with new ones? Yeah. Uh, I see a lot of potential if we if we consider the role of creativity from yeah from the protests that from the grieving rituals that I presented. Great. Well, thank you so much to both of you. This has been a wonderful discussion. As a reminder to our listeners, you've been listening to Lauren Horn Griffin and Jade Hui, and I am Ben Marcus. Uh, thank you to all of you for tuning into this month's discourse episode. Remember to check out all of the fantastic podcasts produced by the Religious Studies Project and visit the RSP website for a treasure trove of essays and other resources you can use in and outside of the classroom. Thanks again, Lauren and Jade, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks for joining us. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR, and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. 
brought to you by managing editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, video editing by Alison Isidore, podcast transcription by Jason Bartasius, and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>